Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative question of whether and how politics should appear in our preaching this week. My name is Raj Patra, and I'm a minister in the United Stockport Circuit of the Methodist Church. And each week I'm joined by a guest from a different place and space on the pulpit and political landscape. Today, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, Reverend Beth Allison Glennie, who is the new chaplain and head of welfare and fellow in theology at Regents Park College, Oxford. So Beth is an ordained Baptist minister and a practical theologian who previously worked with the public as public issues enabler with the Baptist uh, together and was very well part of the joint public issues team and has been here as uh, in the politics in the pulpit journey. So a very warm welcome, Beth, and thank you very much for being here with us uh, this week to have a conversation uh, on the text. Uh, so before I ask you to further say, I mean, you can share about yourself a little more with your new role. I, I also thought this, this episode, it has been a year since the politics in the pulpit has begun. And yes. as a person who has been with this journey, both as a listener and as a host, I mean, you have seen this journey. So maybe as you introduce yourself with your new work, I will, we will be also, our listeners will be happy to hear your response, your experiences of how this one year's journey of politics in the pulpit has been. Hmm. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me back. Um, I, I did joke when I left uh, this role that one day maybe I could come back as a guest and it's really nice to be back as a guest and uh, to find myself um, hastily preparing texts on a Monday morning again. It's like, oh yes, some things feel very similar. Um, so yeah, I was thinking about the fact that this time last year we were in lockdown. Mm. Um, I'd just come, I'd I've been on maternity leave um, with a baby. So I'd spent my pandemic year, uh, that first pandemic year of 2020, locked down with a small screaming little person and a slightly larger and not so screamy little person and the kind of the challenges of lockdown parenting in a clergy household and all of that. So um, politics in the pulpit was really my, I think my, my vision and the hope for it was that we could bring something that could resource people, realizing that local ministers um, everywhere and preachers everywhere were under a huge amount of extra stress um, mm. in what was a very politically changing landscape the whole time. Mm. Um, so we were constantly negotiating COVID regulations changing and um, feeling like uh, I think there was this huge pressure on those who were professional clergy to do a lot of the running of the church because the, the kind of whole, how do you um, safely interact with laity and asking that risk of other people is a different thing. So, so kind of core teams in church life have been kind of narrowed down. Mm. Um, and then, so there was a kind of unique um, experience, I think of burnout and, and pressure on ministers, um, especially, but preachers in general. Um, I think, um, you know, a year on, well, I'm in a very different office, <laughs> a very different space, but I think um, some of those things feel very similar. Um, so we're still navigating COVID and um, exactly how that impacts our freedom and doesn't. And, um, you know, I think in some ways it feels like maybe that um, we might be getting to the end of that journey. Who even really knows? I think with, there's a general sense that now that people don't even really want to believe there is an end to the journey because that feels too complicated too. Um, so I think we're in that kind of a zeitgeist that's kind of very much 
um, captured by that. Um, we're obviously not in lockdown, lockdown, but I know that here in college life, you know, we've just um, we've been negotiating the challenges of of lots of COVID outbreaks. So lots of individuals, I think, are in isolation, even if um, mm. in general terms, we're um, feeling like kind of we're emerging out. Um, and yeah, so what's what's the journey of politics in the pulpit? Well, I've loved listening. Um, I listen. I don't tend to watch Polly because my life is quite busy, but I often catch the podcast. Um, mm. And it's been really wonderful um, kind of hearing some familiar voices and getting to meet some new ones and the different perspectives they bring on the text and the different context they bring of, of what ministry looks like in this current situation. I think that both of those things bring a real richness so that you remember as you're preaching in your particular space and place that actually people are doing all sorts of different things in all sorts of places and it just helps hold the church as a bigger thing than your your little project doing what you're doing where you are which I think it can be really um, easy to fall into and especially at the moment where life is perhaps um, feeling quite mentally quite hard work for people. Mm, indeed it is but uh, but thank you I mean uh, for saying I mean for listening to the podcast for encouraging <laughs> and for celebrating the different perspectives that we hear from people across uh, the breadth of theology. So from your context, and as I understand now you knew, you're in your new role, what do you want us to hear as key justice mm. and political issues today? Yeah, so I was thinking about this today. Um, as I was driving into work this morning, I was like, what, <laughs> what am I going to bring? Because I think... Um, you know, you have some amazing people <laughs> doing some amazing work in, in like different situations of, of extreme poverty and, you know, human, you know, human trafficking and kind of modern day slavery, all those sorts of big issues that have come in and um, rough sleeping and refugee work. And I, I, I'm a university chaplain in a, um, you know, I would like to argue one of the best universities in the world and, and oldest and, um, and it's, um, it's its own thing and it's a very different place to be in a place that's like quite, quite a lot of historical power and mm. a lot of historical privilege let's use that sometimes to exclude um, as we're Baptists we're aware that we weren't even allowed into Oxford until 150 years ago because of our dissenting nature and I think um, it's interesting um, how that I think has kind of shaped some of the space and place and now how the university um, thinks about things, I think probably still at times um, owes something to that heritage. Um, I think I, um, I think the joy and the challenge of working with Gen Z, and I tend to work particularly with 18 to kind of 25 year olds, but particularly that kind of 18 to 22 kind of age range. Um, I, um, I think they bring a really healthy perspective um, mm. to things. I think they are living through the world's hardest um, experience of growing up. I think the later point, point of being a teenager is um, often the point where we do a lot of our key identity formation and, um, they've just had to do that in lockdowns mm. and that's a really um that's going to shape them quite significantly I think for the whole of their lives yeah. um and I think uh they're also living in a kind of um a pre um a pre-climate crisis world or even in a climate crisis world so they are very aware of the fact that they are you know they are going to be making you know 
having to live with this kind of anxiety that we've lived with COVID for probably the rest of their lives in a different kind of way. And that really shapes, um, that really shapes them. It shapes how they view justice issues. I, you know, I work with very bright 18 to 21 year olds, but they are passionate in my experience about changing the world. And I, um, I love it. <laughs> I don't get to sit still. <laughs> I get to, um, I get to constantly have to learn from them about mm. what, what's going on. And, and I, um, yeah, so things like um, anything around gender identity and sexuality, um, conversations about how to be anti-racist mm. in an environment that is um, built on white privilege, um, mm. you know, some really interesting conversations, but how do you ha even have difficult conversations when there are welfare, human, important pastoral questions in the middle of debates that are kind of more generally up for kind of ethical and social discourse. Um, so lots in that I think that they bring. Mm. But thanks, Beth. I think it's really interesting to see the different threads that you bring in, like privilege, exclusion, and working with young people and their passion for social justice, uh, which, which is really, really interesting. And as you will know, Beth, each week we ask our colleagues at the JPIT uh, for a little roundup uh, of their expertise and what they think they might we might be keeping an eye in the world this week so some of the suggestions that we received and as you will know is the possibility of russia invading ukraine appearing to be growing more likely as weeks roll on and uh, we also have dame Cressida dick who was forced to resign as the met police commissioner after the discovery of horrific sexist and racist uh, texts which, which are an indication of the culture of gross misconduct in the force. And uh, we also have the Olympics in Beijing continuing and with the treatment of Uyghur Muslims and the Chinese tennis player Peng Shui in the spotlight. Madagascar has been hit by a second cyclone in two weeks, having already been suffering with drought and famine. There was a significant step towards nuclear fusion as a possible energy source last week which could provide a renewable, uh, potentially unlimited energy source, but many have concerns over using nuclear power. So we, we have all these, I mean, as you've already mentioned, in terms of uh, ecology, in terms of privilege, in terms of exclusion. So how do we really bring in uh, our, our text this week? And metaphorically, as we, we do, we, we open up the world and now then we open our word and <laughs> how best can we relate to our word with the world and in the world? I mean, as in my previous role as working in as a chaplain, as a, a, every time we read a text, I asked this question, how is this the word of God? So I think that's where I want to uh, bring this. I mean, we have the gospel lesson from Luke, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and then the Genesis. So how is this week for you, the word of the Lord? Oh, what a great question. Um, I um, so so it's really interesting. I, I preached on this. Uh, we've got here. We've got uh, Luke um, six, um, which is the beginning of the. Um, you know, well, really, just kind of a, the just after the beginning. That's probably the best way of putting it of the um, of the sermon on the plane. And um, I preached from uh, verse um, thirty nine onwards the other day. And so it's really interesting just to kind of go back a little step um, and and to look at this bit as well. Um, and I think it's really Luke that I've, I've kind of 
brought out as as the text that I think um, for me has I, I would be preaching on if I was preaching on it, partly because um, we always preach, um, we have three terms and so our middle term is always our gospel term in, in our chapel life. So we, we always preach on the gospel this term anyway. We are doing Luke's parables and um, I've been going through Luke's parables and they are incredibly subversive and people keep complaining that I've set these impossible parables for them to preach on. And, um, and that's because Luke's does feel a little bit impossible to preach from sometimes. So how is it the word of God? Well, mm. all sorts of ways. Um, I think, um, I think for me, uh, there's always the question of, of what what would be the question that people would say, or oh, I'm uncomfortable with that being the word of God. Um, and I think um, there's this huge pastoral question in the heart of this text about how do you um, preach in um, this kind of, uh, how do you preach this, love your enemies, bless, you know, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Um, if someone strikes you on the on one cheek and so on and so on um you know how how do you do that in a way that actually um doesn't further marginalize doesn't um require people to stay politically weak um or pastorally um if they have been abused put them in incredibly complicated positions um and I think um, it's, it's that kind of question I would want to ask. How do we preach the power dynamic in this text mm -hmm. in such a way that people um, don't feel, don't get damaged by it? Who, you know, because I think we can use the word of God in ways that um, does unspeakable spiritual mm -hmm. abuse itself. So, um, so I think I'd really want to question that as my kind of my thought. Um, mm -hmm. And I think for me, it's the fact that it is set in the Sermon of the Plain that is the huge, huge bit of context that I would want to bring in. Um, I, um, you know, the questions that get sent out um, before politics in the pulpit, I think I wrote <laughs> so it's a bit familiar in that it was really interesting thinking, yeah, this is probably how I go about preaching. Um, yeah. And one of the questions is about the kind of geography um, and the kind of, you know, the landscape, the kind of, you know, the really practical kind of um, stuff of the, where's the place and the space. And I think it's really important that, um, we pay a bit of attention to the kind of setting that Luke is preaching in. So, um, you know, I, um, I, I use the phrase, the topography of, of Luke being somewhat different. Um, so Jesus has um, come down off a mountain. I think that's quite important that he's, he's come, come down and he's yeah. stood with them on a level place. You know, he's, he's on an equal footing. He's, he's come down from wherever he was on his own and, and kind of praying and, and this, this chance to be, somewhere on on an equal playing field I think is quite telling um it's very different to the Sermon on the Mount yeah. um, um in that sense um and um and they're kind of I think you know then he has these blessings and these woes and I think it's important that we recognize these woes are in there in Luke's gospel yeah. this is not just the beatitudes that make you feel happy but also the ones with come that come with huge curses around woe but woe to you who are rich um for you have received your consolation and yeah. so um so then it's interesting that our phrase starts with um also with a but but i say to you and i think that but that allah um connects with the allah in but woe to you who are rich and i think um it's really important that we we read all of this in light of the of, of this of these blessings and these woes mm -hmm. um 
and and so we've got we've got this kind of Jesus who comes down to a level place who's really clearly doing something physical about hierarchy and geography um and is saying but I but I say to you um in the context of the woes who are yeah. those who are rich um so I think if you start hearing it in that way then whatever is going to come next is going to be something that's much more liberational and less and, and not oppressive mm. um I think that's really um important I remember um thinking I think I probably got into politics um in kind of the political side of preaching partly because I read a Steve Chalk book when I was uh, you know quite quite young um called The Lost Message of Jesus Christ and um I want to critique some of its <laughs> it's it's um exegesis now but it takes this same idea of um being struck on one cheek and right. um what whether there could be a redemptive reading of, of turning the other cheek because um to slap be slapped as an equal uh or to be slapped slapped as a, a slave with the back of the hand versus to be slapped with the equal side of the hand we don't have the cheeks in this passage um it's not a left cheek or a right cheek um yeah. just the cheek off of the other also luke's edited that out um, probably because we're in a slightly different culture. Luke is not writing to that kind of same Jewish community. He's very carefully editing what he's saying to a Hellenistic world. And I um, and I think, so I think I would kind of want to bring out that actually it's, it's less obvious to do that. I wouldn't want to kind of immediately go there with that idea that, um, uh, yeah, that, that there's something kind of subversive about how he's relating to this, you know, to the kind of, occupational powers and hierarchy so it leaves open this question of how do we relate to people who uh, remove our power who abuses and and that how do we how do we how do we use this text as a way that then doesn't further oppress people yeah yeah so there's some of that in there um mm. but i think um you know for from a kind of jpit perspective as well i'd really want to talk about the the middle section, the th verses 32 to kind of 36, which mm -hmm. is, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? And it's um, the what credit is that to you is asked twice. So it's, you know, it's here, to, you know, it's got two parallel, you know, kind of answers. And mm -hmm. they're, they're really, really trying to get into this idea of, of what does this mean? Um, and the word credit um, is charis, it's grace um, or favor. Um, um, and and so there's this kind of like idea in there that we could connect it quite easily to a conversation about debt, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah, there's this Jewish context of money lending that I think we really need to hear as well in the background. Um, and that says something about kind of uh, the money lending would not have included interest um, necessarily. Um, so actually what it's offering is a safe loan, you know, this idea of... Um, if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive again in future. So if you if you receive a loan and you expect it to be paid back and then you expect at some point that you, you will in turn receive a loan from them, um, what kind of, you know, what hope is that for you? You know, what credit is that to you This if you have this safe loan? And I, um, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? That something about credit is not only the thing that is financial, but something about how we relate to one another how we see risk and opportunity, um, who we think is risky and who we think um, is worth trusting um, and giving uh, giving that um, option to. And I think, you know, that's, a that's something that says 
again this kind of quite liberational actually you know who are you gonna who are you gonna risk your you know your financial worth with who are you going to who are you gonna get financially entangled with here even that says something about you know how you how you how you see the gospel at work um you know be merciful just as your father is merciful and you'll be his children there's something about god's character is wrapped up in this and we will um have our identity wrapped up in in that too that that mercy word is also different to matthew so again we've got these really you know contrasting yeah. thing that, that that's not the kind of word of this kind of perfect word that matthew would use but mercy as the key mm. um, key thought mm. um, i mean profound profound but yeah go ahead go ahead no, 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 I'm just, I could carry on talking about this passage for ages. <laughs> it's absolutely but, amazing, isn't it? <laughs> very interesting perspectives. Thank you very much, Beth. Because the way you said the typography where Jesus coming down, the Sermon on the Plain, and then plainly talking, but how plainly these words are, because they would have hit them as listeners, uh, because Jesus was speaking something unusual. And the way you linked with uh, credit and love, and mercy in all of this so i think also um the topography is really interesting because it you know we've got this little snippet but if we move straight on from here it, it suddenly tells us this story of a blind person guiding a blind person and mm. and i immediately go into my kind of disability theology mode of what is really saying about blind people um yeah. you know is i you know i i have glasses but you know has as somebody who's got a child who's pretty visually impaired you start wondering like well what's this saying you know how is, right. how is this like kind of sentence being used and I think it's really interesting that again the the geography of the passage starts to come through because it's not just a ditch it's a it's a deep pit right this is the, you know the kind of sense that we might have of, of kind of of hell actually mm -hmm. um and um and this idea that um, it goes on from immediately in this list of parables that all stuck together. So we can't hear this one snippet out of context of what comes after, um, which is these constant pairs, um, these parables of pairs of good trees and um, good fruit and bad trees and bad fruit. And um, we have um, this idea of, um, yeah, these pairs of people walking together. Um, and then we get the, the two builders as well in this passage. Um, and, and the, but in this, there's this phrase about if, if you take a beam, you know, if you if you're trying to take a speck of dust out of somebody else's eye so they can see clearly, but you haven't taken the beam out of your own eye, you know, what are you doing? And so this sense of judgment and mercy coming through in that. And I think um, what's really interesting about all of that language is um, is the builder who's building the solid foundation has got to do the digging in Luke's gospel in a way that in Matthew's gospel, the patch of earth is just easily visible and spotable. Um, but here you've got to dig deep to the to foundations because there's not this, um, you know, there's not going to be a mountain flood that suddenly wash, you know, lots of, lots of streams that wash your building away, but this kind of upswelling of water and um, there isn't easily locatable rock but you need to do the work then actually beams potentially are quite important as a building material and they connect this the trees and they connect the building together that actually maybe somehow if you can take a beam out of your own eye there's something you can use to build something with and I think um you know there's there's something in there isn't there about kind of you know playing yeah. playing with all these images together and I I think 
it's really interesting if we kind of hold that kind of geographical sense of what's going on there. Um, now, ours is in the middle. We don't have those bits. Um, but I think as a preacher, you need yeah. to be aware that they're in there, they're surrounding it. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I like the way you you spread the canvas. I mean, inviting the preachers and the listeners this week, just uh, see see the larger context and the geography in particular. If yeah. it is on the plane and the way Jesus is bringing these things together. But as I read this passage, Beth, I was thinking, one, again, coming from a context where persecution, oppression, in the name of caste continues, like this verse when Jesus said, if anyone strikes you on one cheek, offer the other. I mean, I had a visit uh, to a persecuted situation in India. And then they asked me this. This was quite startling for me when I said, so what happens if, I mean, I'm prepared to turn my other cheek. But what happens if the, my oppressor turns, I mean, hitting me both my cheeks? Jesus said, oh, if, you, if someone strikes, turn the other one. But if he, turn, if he strikes the other cheek as well, what should be my Christian response in such a context? So mm -hmm. I mean, that ever since then, this, this passage of love in the context of uh, oppression continues to be a challenge. And how do you understand? Yeah. Yeah. How do, and so, so how, how is it, you know, what is the interruption of, 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 um, of the violence in that? Um, and I think um, it's interesting. Again, I think I want to go back to the Beatitudes and say, you know, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, refile you and defame you on account of the son of man. And I think that that, that, that Jesus is writing this um, and Luke is telling us this mm -hmm. in a context where people are being oppressed and people are being beaten up. This is not a manifesto for those of us with our kind of in my 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 white privileged world you know my my kind of my white privileged world in my white academic -y kind of environment that I'm I'm currently in this is this is a this is a text for 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 people on the people who are experiencing this um in in any way um and and are living that out as as particularly as persecuted Christians that's obviously Luke's aim but I think um you know if 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 that's the kind of heart of, of who Luke is talking to, Luke is always about the dispossessed. He's always about the marginalized. So, um, so if that's, if that's where he's going, then I think, you know, we need to read it in that context and with that lens and through that way. And so is he saying something here about, you know, what, what is unexpected, you know, doing what is not expected to, you know, kind of the turning of the table in the, in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, it's not you, you you expected to hit back and then they can use that against you, but you're not hitting back, you know, there, and there's a radical pacifism in here, which, it, you know, it's really hard. I think it's really hard. <laughs> um, but I also think it's, it's also, I think it's important that we understand it as individual. Mm. So this is, this is about, you know, um, that you, um, that listen, and it's not about how countries should manage situations of injustice or how um, bigger kind of, you know, corporations or communities should manage issues of injustice. This is talking about you as an individual, um, yeah. I think, in a particular way, um, because it's, um, you know, I think the kind of in the do not judge and you will not be judged. I think we can sometimes use that as a way of saying, oh, therefore, we mustn't call yeah. out oppression. But actually, Jesus has just said, woe to you who all this. <laughs> so we yeah. can use it to call out oppression. We just we need to do it in such a way yeah. that we are mindful of who we are, that we are mindful of any weaknesses we also come with. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. 
No, which is good. Uh, good to hear that, that because in a way you are saying injustice should not be tolerated just because you are turning it the other cheek. Mm-hmm. So it has to be called out and it has to be addressed with love. And as we have been listening, justice is what love looks like in the public sphere. So, Absolutely. and and that's what Jesus is bringing, uh, uh, inviting us. The second thought, as I read this passage, was is the theological question like today the world around us are much happier to say God is judgmental, God judges. <laughs> but if you start preaching God is ever loving, ever merciful, people are a bit. Uh, why is this message? I mean, you know what I'm saying in terms of mm-hmm. that inclusive love, and when we say God is merciful. So you also be merciful. God is inclusive. You also be inclusive. People are uh, a bit at discomfort. But when you preach, God is judgmental. God is going to judge. Or uh, everybody uh, feel take that message to be the message. What is your take on that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, it's really interesting that it's. Um, I think it's it's holding out this. Um, this question is about the kind of judgmental attitude that censors people and holds them down in sin. I think is what it's calling out, um, not about kind of ethical evaluation in general. But I think part of the reason that people think God is judgmental in that particular way is because the church has told of God in that way, The judge ha- because the church has been judgmental in that way. That's what we, you know, so we need to do that um that that log work if you like <laughs> um um because i think it's um you know it's really telling i'm a chaplain i'm a baptist chaplain that's really unusual in higher education um so i'm i'm a baptist chaplain in a in a setting of students who think that i'm going to be against them that baptist means um i'm anti gay um um i'm probably transphobic um uh, you know, the, in all sorts of ways that I would be automatically about excluding them on some level about who they are. And I think um, I, I've i tried really hard to make sure that they know that that is not true. And those are not things I think. And I'm always willing to do more of the work. But I think the church has got this wrong. And I think um, he, and I think one of the things I would really levy at it for its failure to, um, to do, uh, you know, to, to properly be people of, of, of mission uh, within kind of our kind of 18 to 21 year old demographic is when we have not got that right. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, yeah, the kind of, yeah, the joys of holding out the kind of unconditional care that I get to do in university chaplaincy is, is that I, I don't have to do the, like, I don't have to do the evangelism. That's not, that's not really the role. It's about being alongside and being present. And I think, Maybe if the church worked at some of the being alongside communities who are, imp- are oppressed, and I think what we see in policy the pulpit is so often the people who are doing that so beautifully, those are the times that we learn that God is already at work, and the Holy Spirit is already at work in those communities and has something to teach us there um, mm-hmm. about kind of yeah. our own privilege and yeah and yeah yeah no, which is interesting. I think perhaps this week the listeners and preachers should emphasize that just because God the Father is a merciful one, I mean, as a church, we and as Christians, we should be merciful. Because we have taken judgment into our hands and we judge people, not allowing God to do God's justice. And mm-hmm. I think this week it's an opportunity for us to confess if we are judgmental, if we take control into our hands, and if we keep saying uh, what you call uh, enjoying our privilege, maybe it is an opportunity for us to de-privilege and to mm-hmm. say, want to be one with people celebrating walking affirming who as they are 
And I think that would be an invitation for us as we listen and read to the gospel. I mean, I, that, that takes us to the, the first Corinthians uh, passage, yes. which, which Paul has written to the church. They're again speaking on the re resurrection and with the body theology. So what, what is your take on this resurrection of the body and the whole understanding of the body of Christ and the body theology? Mm. So this is one that we always get funerals, isn't it? <laughs> oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Um, and I think um, it's really interesting kind of, if you read uh, 1 Corinthians um, in it, in more of it, in its fullness, um, in the kind of rhetorical way that it would have been written, this is obviously a snippet of a big, long conversation that Paul is having about what on earth happens with our bodies when we die and and um and it's, it's really kind of on the one hand very practical conversation of bodies and death um and the other hand kind of asking questions around kind of spirituality and division in community and what do we do when we disagree with those things and kind of the different contexts and places people are coming from when they they hear this and and the thing is they're hearing paul as superstitious and a bit ridiculous um mm -hmm is he uses, you know, we, we translate it kind of bodily resurrection, um, but this, um, it really means the rising of corpses. Like it's, we, we lose the graphic language that, that that word, you know, that phrase entails. And I think, you know, it's kind of like, the nearest we'd have is like zombies, right? Like people are like, what are you on? Is this like zombies? Like you've fallen, you lost it. And, yeah. and so this is the kind of theological conversation they're having um, where they're like, what's going on here and I think it's um always love a bit of Pauline rhetoric <laughs> but you know but someone will ask how, how are the dead raised <laughs> with what kind of body do they come um and um it's, it's that um it's it's called a diatribe it's a kind of classic rhetorical device that would have been used in kind of Greco-Roman um mm. Rhetoric right. and Paul is deliberately rhetorical was the style that they would have used in the time, you know, mm -hmm. fool. <laughs> um, and and he uses this image of a seed. It's it's interesting. It's yeah. a very ecological image. Um, yeah. And and he really does look to kind of creation and recreation and this idea of something similar with what has gone before. There is something of the same, and yet there is something utterly transformed. Um, you know, it is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. Um, and and yet kind of like this, so there's something here that that's similar, it contains something of, of what's gone on before, but it is also going to grow into something that we can't even begin to anticipate or expect. Um, yeah, and I, um, I think, I think it's interesting, I think most in what he's saying about bodies and the, the importance of bodies to God, I think, um, I think a lot of the theological thinking I found myself doing recently is about bodies. Um, I think we are aware of our, like how different all of our bodies are, but how they're shaped by our external worlds and, um, and how they kind of continue, you know, some way in, in kind of Christ, you know, Christ's resurrection bodies. And, and then what Paul is saying here, suggesting they continue into heaven and, um, and kind of what does it mean then that we use the word body as the church Um and I think there's something um, there's something about the scandal of being united in a body with people who are, um, if you are powerful, incredibly powerless. Um, you know, it's um, slave nor free, male and female. Um, and there's, you know, there's something about 
your entire physical existence becoming entwined with people whose physical existences are, are different to yours, um, have uh, their entire experiences of life will be therefore completely um, different to yours. And, and to live in an embodied form with those people who are completely different to you which is something of the scandal of the gospel because you will um, have to in some ways both acknowledge your own power to kind of connect it back to the previous text but also to give up your own power as you become um you know I, I want to say covenanted because I'm a Baptist covenanted with those people um and um and I think I think it's really interesting and I think again it it shapes power differently so if you are somebody whose body has been oppressed and marginalized um then I think we really have to um think about how we um we uh, you have agency and you have power and in this in this way of being in the world you know in God's church actually you are put at the center as the most important you're given the most honor and Paul has a lot to say about bodies in yeah. that way um, so I think it's I think there's something there that I I think is really interesting about kind of embodiment as well indeed. yeah no, it, it, indeed it is but because I, I also like from this text the it is not uh, the physical versus the spiritual because Paul is also grounding into the material body and mm. saying his embodiment is really meaningful. Uh, so, I mean, most times people who have read just at the, on the face of this text have always, what you call, put this dichotomy together, bisecting physical versus the spiritual or the perishable, imperishable, all that, that kind of language. But I think Paul is really asking us to hold these paradoxes together. Mm. How can we see the spiritual in the material? And I also like the way he says, first comes the physical and then the spiritual. He, he, so he's not discounting the physical. So he's maybe inviting us to see the spiritual in the physical or the, spirit, the spiritual in the material. And then try, as you said, as a body of Christ, how can we uh, spend time at the table together? Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think, isn't it this way that he's trying to, you know, really talk about kind of he's acknowledging the divisions in the body actually that you know that there are there are differences here and um yeah there's about something not just about right theology but about kind of you know um holding holding life in relationship and um the church in relationship both with himself because they're obviously writing in some disagreement to him but also um with one another as they disagree with each other about this and I also like the way you said about the ecological perspectives that Paul brings in with the seed and calling Jesus as to be the first fruit of resurrection. I mean, again, so maybe it's an invitation for us as a church to widen our ecological horizon and to ground our theology, our faith, our spirituality in the ecological worldview so that we can celebrate with the creation. Yeah, absolutely. That creation is absolutely bound up in whatever God is doing in heaven, right? That we, um, you know, the recreation of the world is includes the world. You know, there's a new heaven and a new earth. This isn't something that we kind of this this earth gets chucked away and disposed of. Whatever God is going to do is mm. something extraordinary in a way that we like with the, you know, with our bodies can't even anticipate. But 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 it will be um, renewed, restored and recreated in some extraordinary way. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, which which I'm sure the, our listeners this week will engage with and try to challenge from the pulpits how important creation, ecology, and grounding it in such spirituality for our for our journey of faith. And I think that takes us to the Genesis reading, uh, mm -hmm. which is 
from 45 where we see i mean joseph and his brothers they're all reunion uh, they're coming together so i mean as i read this passage i i was thinking in the context of being refugees and asylum seekers and how uh, reunions i mean they're they're really emotional but our policies and structures how they divide and it is really hard so mm. what is your take in term in such a in such a context yeah um i think i think again it's kind of trying to um you know it's it's, it's sort of acknowledging the different power isn't there that that power is used to abuse joseph mm. there's a whole story arc here of of this power that's been used to abuse joseph and then because he had power favoritism you know it's very real the kind of the family politics that become big politics global politics you know they're very connected so this kind of this favoritism that was shown therefore he gets he's gotten rid of um but then he you know then he is rejected but then he finds favor in yeah. kind of political life but then you know he knows who his brothers are and then they they have they have no, then by that point they have no power and they're having to ask him and and there's been this you know kind of story of going back and and what does that mean and mm-hmm. yeah and so even at this point of reconciliation mm-hmm. there is still this kind of interesting kind of kind of challenge in there isn't it that um yes he's going to um he's going to provide for them he's going to um you know you shall live here you i will provide for you but it's um it's really interesting that um in there that you know they don't have much choice <laughs> they've got no feed left they've got no grain left with you know um chapter 43 like there's this desperate conversation that sits behind this about whether or not they're all going to die and whether or not they therefore should go and they go it's interesting they go to see joseph not as as brothers anymore they've lost the kinship ties they step into seeing joseph as as men together it is the kind of is the phrase and i think um it's it's telling that the narrator has narrated this to us as kind of um you know as they've gone on their way back to seeing joseph that they've they've lost something of their own kinship and so here they're kind of you know they're regaining it um or joseph is seemingly restoring yeah. it you know um you are my brothers this is my father who i will honor um but it it is it is it isn't without its history and even there it's still the history is still in there and the you know the fact that they don't they don't have this freedom to to walk away from joseph and say yeah. well actually no thanks <laughs> glad to stay where i used to live um yeah it's 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 telling isn't it i think that that the kind of the human stories here are very real. Yeah, yeah. We might yeah. recognize them <laughs> in our ministry and work in different ways in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think it's it's again interesting take but that helps us again as listeners will see that how important reconciliation, reunion, uh supporting one another and standing together uh, addressing the power dynamics certainly because there is the those power shifts in, in this story in Genesis. So yeah and this is lovely link in the kind of you know they've obviously gone with no grain to um to you know to, and that's why they have no grain they go they need grain they go to joseph you know with yeah. benjamin because they that's what they're desperate for they've got nuts they've got some other things they've got these other but they have no grain um and and there's this glorious bit in the luke passage about the measure that is used yeah. to yeah. you um and it's this idea of your robe as your robe creases on your lap that kind of that quantity of of kind of of being kind of 
you know being poured in and I think um I'm just trying to find the 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 verse that it you know the kind of um yeah. a good measure pressed down shaken together running over will be put into your lap you know that pocket created by a by a robe as you as you sit yeah. and I think there's something interesting um just as a link between the two um yeah. there no I indeed I mean thanks uh, Beth I think that is a good connection that you bring in the grain and the measure and also Luke's context of credit so I think today we live in in the context of austerity with the universal credit scrapping so I think there the texts are challenging us as followers of Jesus Christ how, how are we sharing our grain what is the measure that we think for people around us are we really concerned of people for whom universal credits have been scrapped so mm -hmm. how do we put our faith in Jesus Christ more practically and relevantly for a time like this and I think it, it shakes us really so the, these texts really shake us to see that we are called to act yeah and we are called to put our faith into action and it's both bodily and spiritual isn't yeah. it that there's this bodily kind of like you know take the take the risk give the credit to the people who are unsafe to give credit to but there's this kind of spiritual element of you know here's the grace <laughs> where's the grace in who are you giving um you know who are the risky people to give grace to and what's god doing in that and how is god merciful and they're and already at work in that and and yeah i think they're kind of parallels that sit mm. yeah yeah which is important because I think one of the one of the objectives of politics in the pulpit is to see that how we see politics, how, how spirituality is political. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of our, of our readings, we we try to discount or put the physical under the carpet and only over spiritualize. But in a way, we are despiritualizing the text. But what you are inviting us is to hold the physical and the spiritual together and to see that our spirituality is in addressing the physical need of the people around us. Perhaps we're re-spiritualizing the texts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the spirituality can only be understood in the context of, mm. of physicality. You know, this is a word, the word of God became flesh, you know, that that the, the, the Christ is ultimately the word of God. Mm. And, you know, God is incarnational. This is how God works. So God's word works in a similar way. It talks about very physical created things and tells us the truth about ourselves that we can trust in what it tells us about god too and um yeah so yeah all i can say is praise the lord fantastic but thank you very much for all, all your thoughts and uh, your sharing this this week uh, thank you for having me back <laughs> now beth as you know each week we are asking people to share their questions and uh, this week we have Simeon on Facebook, who, have, who has asked this question, where he says, Jesus' message in the gospel reading can sit uncomfortably with those who feel called to stand up against oppression and injustice, to, on occasions, condemn and judge. Is it suggesting we should meekly accept the situation if people are trampling on us or others? I mean, I think this is what we've been trying to answer, isn't it? And I think um, I think that happens on all sorts of individuals' sense of fairness and justice and experiences, and on a kind of global and political level of all kinds of ways. Um, and I think no, I think it's about recognizing the power. It's it's your power to do what you do with your cheeks. It's your power to um, to let somebody take the coat, actually. Um, and I think um, 
that actually re-narrates you as somebody with power to respond in the situation and responding with peace does not is not the same thing as as responding passively I don't think um and I think that's kind of what it's trying to say about owning your own um kind of your own judgments your own your own kind of way of seeing the world um yeah and 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 that it's all held in this context of you know there will be woes on those who are rich there will be woes on those who are full um and there will be woes on those who are laughing no yeah thank, thanks but i'm sure simeon uh, will continue to reflect on what you have said there will be woes on people who who feel they are saturated or about their privilege uh thank you very much beth for joining us this week for sharing your wisdom for your reflections for the challenge uh so uh if uh, to the rest of our listeners i just want to say if you have enjoyed this episode of politics in the pulpit please leave us a review whether wherever you listen to on your podcast and share this episode with your friends you know that our listeners are a passionate and knowledgeable people so we would love to build a community of mutual learning and encouragement around these podcasts so this series we are asking different questions if you want to share your thoughts the best place to join in the conversation is on twitter at at pulpit_politics or using the hashtag politics in the pulpit or on our facebook community which can which you can access through the joint public issues teams facebook page and their website joinpublicissues.org.uk so every week we ask a question we leave a question for people to reflect during the week and uh, this week the question that i have for our listeners from our conversations jesus said if anyone strikes you on one cheek offer the other also but if they strike on both your cheeks what should be a christian just response in such a situation allow me to repeat jesus said if anyone strikes you on one cheek offer the other also but if they strike you on both the cheeks what should be a christian justice response in such a situation so please uh, let us know your thoughts on on twitter or on facebook uh, before we end our listeners may be interested to know that our jpits 2022 conference is on with the theme from the ground up unearthing hope and seeking justice on the 11th of june the tickets are now available please log on to our website joinpublicissues.org.uk/conference and you can book your ticket i should tell the last time i have attended it has been one of the best conferences so i'm sure you will be uh, thrilled to so please do join uh, in this conference if you are able to uh, so thanks once again to beth for joining us so let's go into our into our world into our politics and our pulpits with a prayer and allow me to share this prayer from the resource of the racial justice sunday which we had last week when we do not listen to the cries give us ears to hear o lord when we do not recognize racism and injustice give us eyes to see o lord when we do not speak truth to power give us voices to declare o lord the blessing of god the father the son and the holy spirit be with us and grant god's manifold blessings both now and forevermore amen mm-hmm.